We're going to be on page 837 to start with in James chapter 2 this morning. Radical living, faith that follows. We're going to be looking at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Let me read uh, beginning at verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. And the apostle James writes these words. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith that has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe and shudder. When Christine Bocamp and Kyle Kramer got married in the spring of 2007, they decided they wanted to have a non-traditional wedding reception. They wanted their marriage to begin immediately in service to Christ. First, they determined how much they would spend on an extravagant wedding reception. And then they determined to use that money to purchase 5,000 pounds of food for those in need in their community. They advertised to their community that they would be serving free food available at their church right after their wedding. After the wedding ceremony, Christine and Kyle put on their aprons. One was marked bride, the other was marked groom, and they joined their wedding guests, and they fed over 100 families in their neighborhood. When asked why they did it, the happy couple said they merely wanted to bless God for blessing them um, with each other. Now, when it comes to wedding receptions, that's radical, right? That is an example of radical living. Um, The Apostle James would have called this pure religion in James chapter 1. He would have viewed this as not just being a hearer of the word, but also being a doer of the word. And he would describe that as genuine faith. And that's exactly what our passage is about this morning. Faith that follows. It's about a genuine faith. Faith that not just believes in Christ, but faith that follows Christ. So let's jump in. You can uh, follow on your outline. It's a pretty simple outline, pretty straightforward. Uh, First of all, questions about genuine faith. Great place to start with questions. Questions are good. Verse 14, what good is it, James says, my brother? So he's, he's writing to the church family. He's writing to believers in Jesus. If a man claims to have faith and has no deeds, can such faith save him? Great questions here. Classic questions. Classic questions about Christianity. These questions were asked in the first century, and people are still trying to figure out some of these questions uh, today. Uh, For example, what is the nature of saving faith? How do faith and works work? And what is the relationship between faith and works? 
So when James writes, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims, he's, this is a hypothetical, the if, have, there's a condition here, if a man claims to have faith and has no deeds, can that faith save him? No way. And uh, James uh, already assumes it's a negative construction in the, in, the, uh, in the original language, and it's an assumption of the answer no. Verses 15 and 16, he gives a case study. Look at verse 15. Suppose, so again, this is hypothetical. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. Now, we're not just talking about, you know, somebody has 10 sets of clothing and they only have three left. We're talking about no clothes. We're talking about no food. This is a hypothetical situation. James James is using an extreme example uh, for us to help us understand. Suppose a brother or sister, somebody in the family of God, in your believing community is without clothes, naked, and without daily food. If one of you, condition says, go, I wish you well, bless you, my friend. And he's actually using a, a common first century Hebrew phrase, For a blessing, wishing God's best on their lives. And uh, it's, um, you know, for James, it's just kind of a no-brainer here. uh, If he does anything about his physical need, what good is it? It's of no good, no value. It's worth nothing. When somebody in need, right in front of you, and you act as if it's not there, and you do nothing, it's worthless. That's the case study. Verse 17, he describes dead faith. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith without action is dead. Faith by itself without action is dead. Faith that exists in the head, if it's not acted upon, is dead faith. Faith that exists in your mind but is not acted upon is not living faith. It is dead faith. And this raises some more good questions. I'm glad you were thinking of them. Here it is. Do you have a living faith? Do you have a living faith or do you have a dead faith? Is your faith active or is your faith inactive? Are you, are you just sort of kind of on hold right now? Uh, and how do you have genuine faith? Appreciate your asking. We'll see if we can give you some answers. Look at verse 18. Faith demonstrated. But someone will say, this is an imaginary friend. James is talking to an imaginary person and having an imaginary conversation. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. And so this imaginary conversation, you have faith, I have deeds. What's it about? Um, Which is better, to have faith or to have deeds or to have good works? Uh, James says, show me your faith. He's uh, from the show me state. And... um, He wants to see action. And he says, I will show you my faith. I will demonstrate my faith. I will do my faith. I will not be only a hearer of the word. I will be a doer of the word. 
Now, one of the big questions that this has raised is there's a tension here between what James teaches and what the Apostle Paul teaches about salvation by faith. It's a good tension. It's all, that's all it is, is tension. So just relax. Just attention. All right. And um, by the way, this bothered Martin Luther so much. He wanted to throw the book of James out of the New Testament canon. He just wasn't comfortable with the book of James. Um, so how does James teaching fit with the teaching of the Apostle Paul? Let's look at Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. Very well known passage for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul teaches it is by grace. It's God's favor that you have been saved. Grace. Through faith. In other words, at some point, you have to encounter, and this is in the rest of the New Testament, but you have to encounter who is the person of Jesus Christ. What has Jesus Christ done for you? And Jesus Christ died on the cross, and he paid the penalty for the sin of the entire world. All sin everywhere for all time. And this sin penalty has been paid for, and that is the work of salvation, and God has done the work. And he did it by sending his son. And the message is, God has sent his son. What will you do about it? And God has asked you to believe the message that Christ died for you, paid the penalty for your sins. And that's about making it personal. You have to respond for you. You can't respond for anybody else. You can't respond for your kids or your parents, or your friends. You have to respond for you by faith. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's not about you. You can't do it. You can't bring anything to the table to make yourself acceptable with God. It is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift. The best we can do is receive the gift by faith, by believing what God said. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one could boast. It's not about being good. It's not about you just keep trying hard and keep trying hard, and you hope that one day you'll be good enough that God will accept you. That's not it at all. Not by works. In fact, it's not even believing and doing good works together, because James is going to bring this in, and and that's what we're going to be tempted to see in James. Because if it's about me believing and doing good works together, it's sort of like, okay, God, you've done part of it. You paid for part of my salvation, and now I'm going to pay for the rest because what you did was not good enough, and now I'm going to add to it and make it better. And if we could do that, we could boast. I could say, guess what, folks? I am better than you. Can you see how many good things I've done compared to what you've done? Wow, are you impressed? No, you're not impressed. Not by works so that no one could boast. It's not about us. It's about him. Salvation is about him. It's what he's done. It's a gift. We're to believe. So what about good works? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, next verse. For we are God's workmanship 
created in Christ Jesus to do good works. There they are, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's workmanship. On September 29, 1974, about 4.30 in the morning, I was going one direction. I was, I was uh, self-centered, very uh, into my own life and what I wanted to make myself happy and very much lost. September 29, 1974, I placed my faith in Christ and something happened. God did something inside of me. He did a work of salvation. I was born again. I was given. I didn't earn it. I was given a new nature by God. I became connected with God because of what God did. I became a child of God. I became a citizen of heaven. My sins were forgiven. I was given eternal life. I was set in a new direction. That's God's work. I was God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to be a part of the family of God in Christ, the church, the body of Christ. Why? What was the purpose? Why am I here to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do? God already prepared things for me and you to do. All we have to do is walk with Christ. If I walk with Christ one day at a time, one step at a time, guess what? I am going to walk right into the future where he wants me to be. And those things that he has for me to do are going to be there. And I'm just going to walk into them like, oh, this is no big deal. But, gee, I couldn't have imagined 10 years ago I'd be planting a church. You know, so it's about walking into the future one day at a time, doing good works that God has prepared in advance. Verse 19, the danger of intellectual faith. The danger. Look at verse 19. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. Deuteronomy 6.4 was the most extremely common verse in the Old Testament for the Jewish people. James is writing to a Jewish audience. They believed in one God. That's, that separated them from the rest of the first century culture. Because the first century culture, whether it was Greek or Roman or just about anything else was uh, polytheistic. They believed in many gods, but the Jewish people believed in one God, and it's the same God that the Christians believe in. Deuteronomy 6.4, it's called the Great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yes. And that was um, very important to the Jewish people. It was about sound doctrine, but guess what? If you believe that, it doesn't save you. That's James's point. Even the demons know that. Even the demons believe that. And they just tremble at the thought. They fear God because they believe that he exists. That's a common one today. People often say, well, I believe that God exists. Hey, so what? It, it, it's way more than that. It's about who God is and what he's done for us, that Jesus Christ died on the cross. It's the only way of salvation, and there's no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There's a danger of intellectual faith. Um, take out your program. And on the back of your outline, by the way, is the Apostles' Creed. Now, I, want, I just want to make a point with this. I grew up saying this every Sunday. I grew up memorizing this. I grew up um, studying this and be answering every line. I can explain to you what it meant. 
And I'm just going to read it, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He ascended into Hades, or hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, or the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. This is an excellent statement of what I believe. This is a short statement of faith. It's very sound biblically. It is sound doctrine. But guess what? Here's what I want you to know. I grew up saying this every week. I grew up studying this. I stood before the congregation and said, I memorized it. I could just say it. Now, did that save me? My faith was in this creed. My faith was not in the person of Jesus Christ. I did not get that. I had right information, and it was intellectual assent. That's dangerous, folks. There are a lot of people who have good information but have never placed their faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He was buried. After three days, he was raised again. And then after 40, he ascended into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Right now, Jesus Christ is living and well, and he's sitting at the right hand of God right now. If you and I could be there, wherever that is, the right hand of God, we would be able to see him right now. We would see his scars, and we would see his body, and we would understand, yes, the resurrection, that is awesome. And one day you will see him. Some of you will find great joy in that. Some of you may be surprised. But it's Jesus, the person that we believe in, not just the creed. I'm not against the creed at all. It's just you can miss the person if you're not careful. The danger of intellectual faith. Let's go on to number two on your outline, illustrations of genuine faith, verses 20 through 26. The first is the example of Abraham in verses 20 through 24. And the point that James makes, verse 20, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And the point, faith without deeds is useless. And that's what he wants to tell us about Abraham. So he's going to go to the Old Testament. New Testament hadn't been written. We forget that. Jesus hadn't died on the cross in the Old Testament. They don't have the New Testament written yet. And so we go to the Old Testament, and we have the story from Abraham's life in verses 21 and 22. And the story actually comes from Genesis 22, 1 through 14. I'm just going to tell you what happens, and you can check me on this if you want, Genesis 22, 1 through 14. God tested Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. God said to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your one and only son, the, the one whom you love. Now, Abraham, if you remember the story in the Old Testament, didn't have kids. He wanted to have kids and... Um, took him years and years, and he tried to manipulate a way to have kids, or at least Sarah did. And uh, when 
It was all about God wanted to show Abraham when he was beyond childbearing years that God could raise up a child to Abraham, the old guy. And now he has a son, and his name is Isaac. It's a very special son to Abraham at his old age. And God says, Abraham, I want you to dedicate your son to me. I want you to sacrifice your son as a burnt offering. I don't understand all of that. But it was a test for Abraham. Abraham saddled his donkey, got two servants and his son Isaac, and went on a three-day trip to Mount Moriah and proceeded to make arrangements for the sacrifice and brought his son. And God stepped in with an angel and said, Oh, hold it. You've shown God that you put him first. That's a paraphrase. And then God provided a ram for the sacrifice. That was a tremendous test. Parents, aren't you glad you don't have to go through that? Now, James chapter 2, verse 21 says, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Now, Abraham was righteous for obeying God. He did what God said. That's a righteous action. But this was not how Abraham got saved. If, that's, if the only verse in the Bible we had was James chapter 2, uh, verse 21, we might think that that's how Abraham got saved or how he became righteous. But here's the point. Um, his faith did work out in action. And in a sense, um, his faith was made complete. The point that James makes here, I'm going to read verse 22. You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete. The point, genuine faith is demonstrated by active obedience. Abraham did what God said. Abraham took action, lived out his faith, did what God said. That's a simple definition of faith is taking God at his word. That's what Abraham did. Now, question, was Abraham saved by faith or faith plus good works? If we only had James, I would be tempted to think it's faith plus good works. But James knew the Old Testament better than I know the Old Testament. And James knew what, what is said in Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. After this, okay, we were in, I just explained Genesis 22, when Abraham took his son on Mount Moriah. This is now back 30 years earlier. Please remember that. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. That's Abraham's name before it was changed by God. I am your shield. You're a very great reward. But Abram said, oh, sovereign Lord, what can I give you? Excuse me. What can you give me since I remain childless? So this is before Isaac's born. And the one who will inherit my estate is 
Eliezer of Damascus. This is his nearest relative. Next slide. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body. Here the promise is restated again, will be your heir. Next phrase. Next slide. He took, out, he took, me out, he took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Thirty years before he was tested. This is when Abram was saved. By faith. He believed the promise. Jesus hadn't died on the cross. It was salvation by faith. Believing what God had said. And Abraham believed this promise. Look up at the heavens and count the stars. That's a pretty big promise. You're going to have a family that big, Abraham. Abraham's an old man, doesn't have any kids yet. And he believed God. That's when we would use the term being saved. Or it's when he was uh, in a right relationship with God. And Abram... Uh, goes forward and he lives out his faith and he takes steps of action to serve God in living out his faith. And that's genuine faith. It's living faith. It's living by faith. Um, The next one is the example of uh, Rahab, verses 25 and 26. Rahab. And it's a story uh, from Rahab's life in verse uh, 25. And we're going to go back to Genesis, uh, Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6. And I'll just trust you to let me tell this uh, part of the story. A story from Rahab's life. In Joshua chapter 2, Joshua the great commander was responsible, Moses is dead, Joshua is responsible to take the people of Israel, two and a half to three million strong perhaps, and they are to go into the promised land and conquer the land that God was going to give them. And to do that, one of the things they had to take the city of Jericho. So in Joshua chapter 2, Joshua sends spies into the land. And the spies are to go in and have, on a reconnaissance mission and find out the facts and the information to get some kind of read on what kind of action should be taken. Two spies went to Jericho. Rahab hid those spies and protected them from the, the men of Jericho who would have killed them if they had a chance. We don't know the whole story, but we do know that Rahab had heard about the Lord God of Israel and all the things that he had accomplished in bringing um, God's people out of Egypt. And, and Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute, was impressed by God. So much so, she asked these men to save her family when they came back to capture the city. She believed God would win the city. She believed the Israelites would take the city. And uh, she trusted God, and she was willing to risk her life because it would have been easy for the men of Jericho to come in, find out, you know, she's just a prostitute. Now think in terms of the contrast. Abraham, the patriarch, the superhero, and Rahab is a prostitute. And yet she's commended 
for her faith because she was a risk taker and she hid uh, these men of Jericho. Verse 25 says, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Yes, she was considered righteous because she believed God. She trusted God. And then she, um, her faith was acted out when she protected those uh, two men on reconnaissance. Hebrews, she makes the faith's hall of fame in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, verse 31, this is where all the heroes of the faith are, Ch- Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Um, Rahab is um, marked out for notoriety because of her faith. The point, genuine faith, is demonstrated by active obedience. Genuine faith is demonstrated. It's not dead faith. It's real. It's living. Verse 26, genuine faith must be spiritually alive. James writes, as the body without the spirit is dead. So faith without deeds is dead. This is a great analogy. It talks about physical death. Facing a death is not fun. If you see a body in the casket, you see really the shell of that person. They are no longer present. But the body is left behind. That living part, that spirit or soul, has been removed, separated. Um, when, when Adam was cre- created, God breathed in his body the breath of life, and Adam became alive. And when that life leaves, the breath of life leaves, physical death. Faith for James without a life-giving spirit is dead also. It's useless. Um, when, When I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, way back in 1974, I was dead in my sins, but... I was given a life, and God breathed into me a spiritual life, and I became alive spiritually. And out of a spiritual life is to come spiritual fruit. There's a lot of ways the Bible talks about that. You know, Jesus said in John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches. The whole goal is that you bear fruit. Um, And James would call those good works. Um, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, another key passage that talks about works. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now, much more in my absence, I love this passage, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to work out. It's not continue to work for your salvation. As if, you know, if you, get an, if you do enough good things in your life, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He's going to, he's going to weigh your good deeds and say, ah, almost. Nope. This is about, this is to the church. This is to people who have already believed, who've already trusted Christ, who've already been given the gift of salvation, continue to work out 
your salvation with fear and trembling. Be extremely humble, for it is a God who is at work in you. How did God start working in you? Well, he gave you the gift of salvation. It includes the gift of the Holy Spirit in you, who indwells in you. It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. It's about working out so other people can see who you are and who you're related to, the God of heaven. Well, what he is like, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. And so there's a place where I have to, I have to put forward some effort in my life. It's not just sitting back and, oh, I'm saved now, and it's because I have faith, and isn't that nice? I'm going to heaven. I have fire insurance, eternal fire insurance. No, my faith is living and led by God. He's going to have me doing some things. He's going to lead me into doing some things. He's going to put some things in front of me that he wants me to do, and he's given me plenty of instruction in the Scripture on what some of those are. And then uh, another passage from Jesus, Matthew 5:14 through 16. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it in a stand and give it light to everyone in the house. So he says to his followers, the followers of Christ, this is to you. You are the light of the world. You're a follower of Christ. You are the light of the world. Light is not to be hidden, not to be covered up. Light is to shine. Light is to be seen. And that's God's intention. Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds. How does your light shine? When people see you walking in the power of the Spirit, serving Christ. Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds, and praise your Father in heaven. People will see how you live. They'll be attracted to the light. And they are going to become worshipers themselves. At some point, they will be able to praise the Father in heaven. They will understand who Jesus is by how you live. Um, Doug Nichols tells of an unusual way to let your light shine. When he was with Operation Mobilization in 1967, he was in India. Anybody here been to India? Okay, a few of you have. I was there in 1989. This was 1967. Nicholas was stricken with tuberculosis and put in a sanitarium. This was a government-free sanitarium. I can't imagine what that would have been like in 1967. I was in some of the medical facilities in 1989. Um, so he is in this um, sanitarium and he is there for several months and he could not speak the language. He tried as a good Christian to distribute Christian literature and gospel tracts in their language, hoping he was doing a good thing. And they all, every one of them, politely rejected him because he was a rich American And he was taking advantage of the free clinic. And he said, I was just as poor as everyone else there. Every night around 2 a.m., Nicholas woke up with a coughing spell, like clockwork. One night, he noticed the man in the bed next to him, an older man, a very sick man, tried to sit up, 
very, it was very difficult. And then he tried to stand and he couldn't do it. And then he just fell back into bed and he just cried softly. The next day, Nicholas figured out what had happened. He was trying to go to the men's room. And everybody in the ward hated him that day for the smell in the room. The patients were on this guy. The nurses came and cleaned him up and treated him very roughly. One nurse slapped the older man. Next night, 2 a.m., Nicholas wakes up coughing. He sees the man. The man tries to get up again. And um, Nicholas says, I don't like smells. And I didn't want to help. I didn't want to get involved, he said. He got up out of bed. He went over and lifted the man up. He said the man was very ill and had lost a lot of weight. He carried the man to the men's room, which really wasn't a men's room. It was just a room with a hole in the ground. I've seen them. And he held the man up by his arms. And when they were finished, he carried him back to bed. The man smiled and kissed him on the forehead. And he spoke to him in a language that he had no idea what he said. The next day, one of the patients in the room came and brought Nicholas a cup of fresh tea. And he made signs that he would like some of that literature that he had offered earlier. So he took some of the literature and a gospel track. Throughout the day, several patients in that ward came up to Nicholas and asked for that literature. A couple of weeks later, a Christian missionary was in visiting who knew the language. And after um, visiting in the ward, he told Nicholas that several people had come to faith in Christ through that literature. And Nicholas's whole point, it wasn't about how skilled he was in communicating, how well he had learned the language, or how good he looked. It was about taking a man to the bathroom. What an example of genuine faith. What an example of faith that follows Jesus, just serves Jesus. Let's stand and pray. Father, I thank you for uh, James and... um, some of the parts of the passage are, are hard, and yet we understand, God, that what you're looking for is obedience. You're looking for hearts that want to follow you, hearts that want to serve you. We can't just say we're Christians without acting like Christians. We can't just say we believe without following Christ. We can't just say that Jesus is Lord without letting him be our master. Father, may um, we not be just hearers of the word, but may we be doers of the word. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.